Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain Hello and welcome to Bowie versus Dylan, the podcast where we settle history's greatest question, colon, who's the greatest of them all, David Bowie or Bob Dylan? Is that about right, Chaz? I'm Charlie, and I like Bowie. And I'm Jake, and I love Dylan. Today, we're going to tackle the year 1989, but first, we've got a little bit of a plug to make. We're going to uh, direct you to BowieVersusDylan.com, and actually, go to www.BowieVersusDylan.com. That's versus with a V-S, not the entire word. That was not confusing. Charlie, tell us about Bowie in 1989. 1989, a sweet, succulent 1989. <laughs> uh, the 80s. Oh, the 80s. Mm, uh, so good. Picture yourself, Jake. Oh, I, I'm going to. In, in, in 1989. Oh, I'm what ready. What are you doing in 1989? Uh, like, for real? Yeah, why not? I was, uh, I was eight. I was riding my bike around with some real high, like, white athletic socks. <laughs> I was listening to MC Hammer, probably. Probably. Uh, little John Fogarty on the side. Uh, <laughs> and I was probably dreaming about, I was probably swinging a baseball bat. Even if I didn't have one in so, my hands. I'm going to take it that you were not aware of David Bowie creating a band for the first time in 20 years. I think I remember it was called Metal Contraption. Is that correct? Uh, well, it's close. <laughs> so anyway, the background here. We're going to set this all up. Mm-hmm. Bowie spent the 80s just slowly, like, just, it was just kind of like a, uh, a roller coaster going down. Mm-hmm. Like, he started out, like, his first album, he only had, it's only his fourth, uh, studio album in 1989 for the, for the, uh, for the decade, which is a lot less than the 70s, for instance. Kicked it off with Let's Dance in 1983, which is a decent album and gigantically, crazily successful. That's right, we talked he about that. He took things down a notch in every way possible with 1984's Tonight. <laughs> took things down another notch in every way possible in 1987 for Never Let Me Down. Yeah. Pretty much everyone, all his fans, he'd, he'd alienated his fan base quite a bit. He let them down. Uh, he let them down, ironically. <laughs> Although he did say never let me down, and uh, yeah, no, oh. I don't know if let him down. Well, they he probably did by not so, buying his album. Ominous. Ominous. It's like when the bands, you know, make, like, name their band, or name their album Eternal or something, or yeah. Immortal, or, or Spice Girls Forever. Like, you just know <laughs> that thing's going to stink it up. Guaranteed. Except for the Spice Guaranteed. Girls one. You're right. <laughs> uh, Michael Jackson one of those in there, too. I don't remember. Anyway, so 1989's is, is where he like he, he tried. Well, he he was trying on 1987's uh, Never Let Me Down. He just sucked it up anyway. Okay. He wasn't trying on 1984's tonight. Not even the slightest. Okay. So then he uh, we come up to his first true comeback or comeback attempt anyway. Okay. And it's something a comeback. It's not as bad as Never Let Me Down. So we'll just go through that. And Bowie decided the best way to make a comeback was by forming a band and just being part of the band and like trying to make it as democratic possible. And this band was called. Chin Machine. Oh, that's what it was. 
Tin Machine. Sweet, sweet Tin Machine. Tin Machine. There's a, song, there's a song called Tin Machine also on the album called Tin Machine by the band called Tin Machine. <laughs> starring David Bowie and starring some other guys. Tin Machine. No, he would not want you to say starring David Bowie. Right. Want oh, I see. You say starring David Bowie, Reeves Gabriels, Hunt Sales, and Tony Sales. That's what he wants oh. you to say. He, uh, he set it out immediately. It was supposed to be very democratic. It was supposed to be a full-on band. They all got paid the same amount. Yeah. Uh, they did interviews together. Mm-hmm. Like he refused to do solo interviews, and then at least one of the other members of the band with there. And they were supposed they were trying to figure they tried to set it up so they had equal interview time between the four of them. Wow! So the whole thing came about. He was working on I don't know what he was working on. He's working on not sucking it up anymore. And uh, he met this dude named Reeves Gabriels through his wife. His wife was working like in PR or somewhere. I don't remember the whole story. But Bowie met. Reeves Gabriel's wife, and who passed along his demo demo tape. For some reason, Bowie listened to it. <clears throat> I would think he gets passed a lot of you know, passed a lot yeah, of demo tapes. Yeah, for sure. But for some reason, he listened to this one. He was like, oh, "Those guys, awesome." <laughs> and uh, wait, were they called Tin Machine yet? No, they were not. Okay, we'll get to that. They were known the name Tin Machine for quite a while. Gotcha. Uh, and so this guy's like a really artsy guitarist. You know, he's kind of got like a little Robert Fripp to him in there. I don't know. He's doing crazy, you know, bending space and time with his guitar, that type of stuff. Which I can see that appealing to Bowie. He's, he's you know, picked up a lot of guitar players through the years who did that kind of thing. Sure. And so they start working together, they're feeling good about it, and they decide that, for some reason, to make this into a band. Okay. And they need, you know, additional members to a band for it to be a, you know, true band. And kind of unfortunately, they landed on <laughs> these brothers oh, no. uh, named Hunt and Tony Sales. Yeah. Um, notable for a couple things. First of all, they are the children of the comedian Soupy Sales. What? Yeah. Okay. True fact. Great. <laughs> Secondly, Bowie worked with them before. Is how this came up here. Wow. Because they played on Lust for Life. Iggy oh. Pop's 1977 album Lust for Life, which Bowie wrote most of the music for. Well, there's some bona fides. So there's you know they've they've, they've done their what am I even trying to say? I almost said sown their oats. That's not quite right. Anyway, we're going to go with Sound That's disgusting. And uh, so they came aboard, but the thing is, they're not artsy at all. Not in the slightest. They played an Iggy Pop album, and it was one of Iggy Pop's harder albums. Although Iggy Pop is not, he's already artsier than you'd think he was, most of the time. Sure. Uh, but they kind of like messed things up maybe a little bit. Because they're all like more of that, you know, Stone style R&B type, a little bit down and dirty type, type thing going on. And they really wanted this to be very spontaneous, and they're encouraging Bowie to keep it spontaneous. And in some ways, I think it was too spontaneous because they mm-hmm. like it was very much trying to do first takes on everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they'd write it, you know, right there while they're playing it. They're improvising in some of it sometimes. Uh, they really were pushing Bowie to not rewrite any of his lyrics, which we'll get to more about his lyrics a little bit later on. And the result then was an album. They did a whole bunch of songs. Um, one of the songs was named Tin Machine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they were trying to come up with a band name. Uh, they came up with several different possibilities. The one that sticks in my name is, uh, and I'm already forgetting it. It didn't stick in my mind. Oh, yeah, Alimony Incorporated. It's kind of like that name. Yeah, that's Apparently better. All four of them were fairly recently divorced. So, oh, Bowie was <laughs> almost 10 years divorced at that time. Anyway, so they, they were thinking about calling themselves Alimony Incorporated, which I like that name. That's good. But then they decided to they decided they liked the idea of like having their own theme song. So they named themselves Tim Machine after the song Tim Machine, which actually is a decent song. Okay. And they also named the album Tim Machine. 
They named their other studio album in 1991, Tin Machine 2. No. It's a lot of Tin don't Machine do going it. on here. <laughs> they did it. No, done, don't! <laughs> it's too late. It's too you late. shouldn't have done that, guys! So, they released this album, Tin Machine. Yeah. was the name of the album, in case you were wondering. Um, they did, a, like, a mini tour. They didn't do, like, a big, giant stadium tour. It was making it smaller. On the tour, they refused to play any David Bowie's any of David Bowie's previous solo compositions. Nothing. None. Which means they had one album to draw on and a couple covers. Yeah. You'll be pleased, Jake. One of the big covers they did was a Bob Dylan cover. Yes. It was um, Maggie's Farm. Oh, that book that's mentioned in, great. <laughs> we mentioned it. Well, they released a live version of it, so we'll talk about that. Excellent. On a double A-side single. Ooh. Uh, a cuss single? A cuss single? Well, probably. <laughs> I don't know if it came out and it probably did. Probably in that in those days I would think so. It came out like a single. So they did like a mini tour, I think it was only twelve stops. They uh they did much smaller venues. You know, Bowie was just coming off of Glass Spider Tour in nineteen eighty seven, which was his biggest tour to date at the time. And really? really crazily elaborate, incredibly theatrical, went to all kinds of places. Everybody hated it. Uh-huh. It was great. <laughs> And so yeah. this was smaller, and they only played, you know, I mean, they only there's only 14 songs in the albums. They had 14 songs. They had one song they were playing that ended up on their second album, and they had, like, two or three covers. And that was it. It was wow. rocking it out. Just being a band. Hardcore. The thing about Tim Machine, maybe I didn't mention this, is it is very heavy guitar sounds. Okay. It's by far, this, the first Tim Machine album here is by far the heaviest album that Bowie ever did. Uh, and it works sometimes <laughs> All but right. not other times now I mentioned before and this is a good little thing here because I'm going to regale you Dick with some uh, some lyrics yes because, I've been waiting like I said they, the band really encouraged him to not go back and change any of the lyrics and Bowie's lyrics are kind of like they're kind of interesting because they have all these all kinds of multiple ways to look at them and interpret them and that was one of Bowie's like magic magical powers yeah. was how we seem to appeal to all kinds of different people in a lot of different ways. It's one of those things I really picked up on after he died is how everyone who was sad was sad for a different reason, mm. I felt like. Like, everyone had connected with him in some different way, which is really kind of cool. And um, and his lyrics really played into that because you could interpret them multiple ways. People could see them going on different ways. They're really kind of elliptical and strange and, you know, the sci-fi references and all kinds of crazy stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, he'd stopped doing that for this album, particularly on a couple songs. Um, and I'm going to read you, I think we're going to do the whole, the whole thing, the song Crack City, which, uh, first of all is called Crack City. Yeah. And, uh, Bowie cares about stuff. And we, we know that in the eighties, we covered 1983, we talked about how he's looking at racism and MTV, like ask right. MTV basically why they were racist, which was cool. Uh, and that was good. And now he's, like, kind of upset about drugs. He's been clean by this point for over 10 years, more or less. And I think, he, I don't know if he's on the alcohol. I, don't know, I think he was still drinking pretty heavy at this time. I don't remember that. So he uh, he wants to wants us to know about that. Uh, Crack City is one of the worst lyrical songs he's ever written. I don't think it's probably the worst one. There's probably others. But it's, it's definitely down there. But I do believe it contains the worst line he ever wrote. Okay. I'm waiting. Okay, the rest of our preparation for this is, we talked before the show about how we're trying to keep this thing like, you know, hard PG or, or you know, soft PG-13. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I, I have a feeling like uh, that uh, 
big portion of our target demographic is uh, dads like listen to a podcast while doing the dishes with the kids in the next room. I would think so. I know that. I know that's how you and I will listen to podcasts. That's anyway. that's what we do. And so I try to. I'm going to keep out the swears. So you'll know what words you said, but I'm not going to swear just for that reason. Keep it safe for work. If your work allows you to sit around and watch a podcast or listen to a podcast, I don't know. My, all my the, work doesn't let me do all that. All the works do. All the works do. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Crack City by David Boyd. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, come, all you children. Don't grab that scabby hand. It belongs to Mr. Sniff and Tell. It belongs to the Candyman. Don't whore your little bodies to the worms of paradise. Like Everest, it's fatal. Its peaks are cold as ice. They're riding on the subways. They're riding on the streets. They'll ride you down to the gutters. They'll ride you off your feet. Gonna hit Crack City. Hit Crack City. Piss on the icon monsters whose guitars bequeath you pain. They'll base you down to their level with their addictions and their fast lanes. Are you ready? We're coming up here, Jake. I'm ready. I'm just in Corrupt with shaky visions... And crack and coke and alcohol. Here it is. They're just a bunch of a-holes with buttholes for their brains. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> I believe that to be your wait, first wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Just... Going here cause, cause oh, all right. I'll do, do that one more time. Just so we can all appreciate it and then I'll it. Uh, okay. Corrupt with shaky visions and crack and coke and alcohol. Yeah. They're just a bunch of a-holes with buttholes for their brains. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't make it through this, this was on an keep, album. You can't keep on riding okay. the pain you know so well. They'll ride you down to the gutter. They'll ride you down to hell. Oh no! Go to hit Crack City. Hit Crack City. And you, the master dealer, may death be on your brow. May razors slash your main line. I'm calling you out right now. May all your vilest nightmares consume your shrunken head. May the whole how how hounds of paranoia <laughs> dance upon your stinking bed. Don't look at me, you effers. This nation's turning blue. It stink. It stink. It fouls the highways. It's filth. It sticks like glue. Hit Crack City. They'll bury you in velvet and place you underground. Did you catch that, that reference right there, Jay? I got it. Thanks. The hatred of yourself and the sufferings that conspire to take your little body and throw it to the fools and the hounds that rip your flesh. Only your mind can take you out of this. Only your mind or death. I'm riding on the subway. The subway down to hell. I finished with this journey. I seem to know it well. Gonna hit, hit city, hit crack city. Ooh. Les Fonts. Just let that sink in a little bit. I can, I'm, I'm just, I'm blown away. Like my, <laughs> I feel like my, I feel like my social consciousness has expanded like you know? uh, a thousand I mean, percent. Do you, do you hate drug dealers now, finally? Man, you know what I hate? I, mean, I kind of thought they were okay before I listened to this song. Yeah, well, sure or that, at uh, least not that bad. That, you know, I mean... Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were I mean, bad. The drug but... dealers. Now I'm like, oh, drug dealers. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. It's what's afflicting our nation, for sure. For sure, definitely. Uh, I like the end, of the end part where he talks about his own journey and just remind us all that he did, like, that's right. a school bus full of cocaine. <laughs> in the 70s. Right, but not anymore. So all you people who are doing it now, uh, you're going to hell. Well, you know, I mean, to be, I think it's more against the dealers than just the users. Oh, definitely. Definitely. But even gets like the uh, you know the icon monsters. So like you know the rock stars who do 
school buses full of cocaine in the mid-70s. Yeah, don't listen to them and their screaming guitars. Don't, listen don't to listen Tin to, Machine, bro. Listen to this other rock star over here, <laughs> this guy over here. Yeah, listen to this rock so that's, star. That's Crack City. So it's, Tin Machine ended up being, I know, it was an interesting little, you know, venture in, in 1989. But we still wrote, he at least co-wrote all of the songs, except for a completely awful cover of Working Class Hero. Oh, that's too that, bad. That's a good song. Which appeared on, for those at home... A couple years ago, Jake and I created uh, mixtapes, mix CDs for each other. <laughs> we did. Of the best and worst of our respective artists. And uh, working class, their cover of Working Class Hero was on my worst of David Bowie. Yeah. Um, Craig said it wasn't, which I mean, maybe I, didn't, I don't think I properly appreciated it until right. for this podcast. You hadn't, you hadn't bothered to do the research on that. I hadn't listened to it enough times to know what those lyrics were about, except for that one awful line. I definitely picked that one up. Oh, that is just terrible. <laughs> it's terribly awesome it sounds like a so, 16 year old was like really feeling himself one day he's like I'm gonna write this song well that's and, and the like the completely unnecessary swearing feels like a teenager like exactly I can say this kind of stuff he just like pops yeah, it's it in like, there oh, no reason listen to this man There's no purpose behind it Effers. he's just being being hardcore so after the tour and everything of the mini tour, they did have a few singles, which we'll get to. And while we're looking at, you know, count up points and stuff, uh, Bowie finished things off by taking a hiatus from Tin Machine for the next year. <laughs> <laughs> he'd had enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did all this. He was talking about he was loving it, and he did. He's always talked positively. Like later on, years later, he always talked positively about Tin Machine in his years. And even when he recognized later on the music wasn't that great, um, he he still recognized it as rejuvenating him artistically like really feeling like this was something to like get him out of this rut and move on into the 90s where he started making music worth listening to again yeah well good for him so yeah he took a hiatus and did a greatest hits tour in 1990 that's what he followed this up with so he went from never playing any of them tour, yeah. to playing all of them a big gigantic fat greatest hits tour mm. and the idea behind it was that he was going to retire all those songs which he did for a few years anyway okay so okay finish things up here with the year in Bowie's hair. Oh, yay. Great. I know, I know a favorite of yours. Oh, I love it. So, Bowie here, uh, maybe I should preface this too, is they, in spite of the fact that they were like a hard rocking, you know, kind of proto-grunge-ish type thing going on, they for some reason decided to wear like big shoulder-padded, double-breasted 80s suits mm. all the time. They looked like a bunch of co- corporate shills, which is exactly the opposite, I think, of what they were going for. Probably. So I don't know why that was there. Wait, Bowie's hair matches that. Yeah. So think of a late 80s uh, stockbroker. Can I offer... Can no, I, you go. See, see okay, here's, here's what I'm offering. What here's what I'm offering to you. I'm offering to you Christian Bale in American Psycho, is what I'm offering. I haven't seen American Psycho. Oh! Okay, it's all about 80s yuppies corporate guys. <laughs> and some other stuff, but... He, okay. looks, he looks like how I imagine you're talking, Bowie looked. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, while, I'm, while I'm describing this, I'm going to look up Christian Bale in American Psycho. Please do. Okay. So, he's got, it's kind of slicked back, sort of. But he's got, you know, a few little uh, strands at the front that kind of yes. roll That's kind of a, is that a bit of a classic Bowie look? I feel like that oh, hair. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's in that zone. Okay. It, Bowie's hair is a little shorter. Okay. It's got definitely got those strands coming forward. You yeah. Know, like there's always a little there. Yeah. And 
then the other part we don't have is not American Psycho at all here. Is uh, Bowie grew an awful beard. Yes. Oh, good for you, Bowie. Way to go. It was a beard, but only in name. <laughs> only technically. I mean, I, I kind of wondered, you know, it's one of those surprise things I think about adulthood that I didn't realize when I was a kid. Yeah. Is that like, only about, I would say like half of men can actually grow a decent beard. For sure. You know, it's not every man can grow a decent beard. Yeah. You're, you're pulling it off, but you know. It's not the best, but I can it's do it. It's not the best. I can do it. I'm, I'm like just the other side of that, you know, I think we're both towards the middle. I'm the other side of that coin. I, my beard would be bad. Yeah. Well, that's, that's okay. right. It's bad. So Bowie's like, you probably about what my beard would look like if I bothered to grow a beard. It's pretty, pretty thin, pretty scraggly, pretty unnecessary. But it was, it was like real. It was like for real. He, it was for real. I mean, well, he, he was reinventing himself. He really was a growing a terrible dude. All right, so what's his year? What do you score it? What's his year in hair? Um, I don't know. My numbers for hair don't even matter, you know? Like, I know, I'm not but even, I... like keep talking these things anywhere. It's I, pretty bad. Okay. It's aged awfully, which a lot of his haircuts have. So give us a number. I need, I'm going to give him a, a two. A two, okay. And this one doesn't yeah. go into the negatives, right? It starts at zero? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. I think it starts at one. It starts at one. He can't. He can't have a zero. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Come on. You know he can have a zero. Well, zero if he had no hair. But there's no years where he has no hair. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I think he should have done that as well. <laughs> I think he should have had so all the hair. Trick, that is 1989. All right. Of David Bowie and Tin Machine. Thank you for that. I'm going to start all off. All of whom had buttholes for brains. <laughs> All the a-holes had buttholes for brains, for <laughs> sure. All right, well... Speaking... He, you know, he kept working with Reeves Gabriel, the guitarist, for many years afterwards. Okay, like, not, not the brothers. For like 10 years. The other two just, just were sticking around for... There's one more Tin Machine album, and a Tin Machine live album, whenever we get up to 92, which is a real low point of his career. <sighs> That's going to be a great time. But we'll, we'll wait for 92 on them. All right, well, I'll start Dylan's, uh, Dylan's 1989 by you know, pointing, pointing you out to some very interesting parallels, Charlie. Because no, uh, it was also a comeback year for Dylan. Am it was, it was, right, and go, he had also go, been he had also been on a very uh, bad downward slide since 1983 when he released okay. Infidels, which Infidels, is which was not to be produced by Bowie. And it was, and it's not actually a good album in my in my opinion, uh, but it was warmly received at the time as being not <laughs> not a Christian album, um, even though there's Christian songs on it, and he never stopped writing Christian songs. But we should do an episode entirely uh, focused around comeback albums. I, every episode Dylan's that we've like done so far. <laughs> I think Joe, Dylan will win. But we have like five comeback albums and Dylan has like 20. Oh man. All right. So I'm going to ask you to picture yourself. I pictured myself. I'm doing it all right. You're, you're Bob Dylan and it's 1989, <laughs> the beginning of 1989. You were at a yet another low point of your career. <laughs> uh, they kept getting lower and lower in the 80s. Uh, this, you know, could be one of the lowest points of his entire career. How do you choose to express how low of a point you're at artistically? All right, a. By starting a proto-grunge band uh-huh. and not taking full credit and just putting on a corporate business suit and growing a beard. That is not what Bob Dylan did. That sounds familiar, but that's not what he did. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. So, A. You telephone the main office of the seminal American rock band, The Grateful Dead, and ask sincerely to join their band as one of the members of The Grateful Dead. 
B. I know we did that, but I don't remember what year it was. B. You take your secret wife and secret child and secretly stash them in a secret house in a secret nondescript neighborhood in California and don't let anyone visit them or talk to them. <laughs> C. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just think about that. C. Become jaded in just the second year of the never-ending tour and begin wearing a baseball cap with a cinched-up hoodie during your wildly hit-or-miss performances. Or D, consider quitting music altogether as later, quote, recounted in your, quote, autobiography, Chronicles, Volume 1. Or E, all of the above. What it's all, I was going to say, it's all of the above. <laughs> oh, you're darn right it is. He did all those things in 1989. Um, I want to introduce to you a new segment. Um, we won't need to do it every time that we have a podcast, um, but I want to uh, introduce a new segment blindly to you, live here on the air of a podcast. Okay, well. Okay, it starts with personal controversy that I had when I was, uh, when I was looking this up. So do you know what the word, um, it's spelled like this, N-A-D-I-R. How, do you know what Nader. that word? Nader, okay. Yeah. The lowest point in the fortunes lowest point, low point in career, yeah. of a person yeah. or organization. Okay, so I knew this word as well. I had been using it for years to sound smart around people. I sure, had been saying nadir the whole time. Nadir, okay. not nadir. Okay, so I went and I had this great name for the low point of either Bob or uh, Bowie's career. I wanted to call uh-huh. it the nadirometer. I went to look up. I went to look up Nadir, which that's not how you say it. Google told me they said Nader. Is it Nader? It is Nader. So you're correct. I was really starting to second guess myself now. I know. I know. I was story that you're sharing with us. (laughs) I was devastated. No one was around to see it except for a baby, but I was devastated. That I've been doing this for years. But cry real tears. uh, No, but I did come up with a way better name for this segment. It's now okay. called the Nader Orator. <laughs> so much better, right? Okay, all right. So how does this segment work? I healed myself by coming up with a really great pun name. It's called <laughs> Nader Orator. Okay, obviously zero is the lowest you can be because that would be the lowest point of anything is the number huh. the number zero. Um, I'm thinking that Dylan, for instance, and we can both do this, this segment, because uh, yeah, yeah. we both had bad years in 1989, or at least low points during that year. Um, I think that Dylan was at like a 1 or a 1.5 in the beginning of 1989. He was considering quitting music altogether. Wow. What about Bowie? Um, I don't know if he ever seriously like considered quitting music. He was pretty bummed about the way things were going, but uh, he only had himself to blame, and he was pretty aware of that. Yeah. Maybe like a, a two? Okay, a is two. He's got at least three albums that are worse than Tin Machine. Yeah. At least at least three out of the 20 At whatever. least three out of the 28 albums. <laughs> okay, all right. Albums. So they actually are kind of in the, in, the, in the same area, at least. Yeah. I mean, if like 1966 for Dylan is a 10 then the beginning of 89 has to be like a one. It's pretty bad. Okay. So, uh, uh, fast forward a little bit to Dylan having yet another sort of like weird artistic awakening. I'm sensing a pattern as I go through this. Like there's yet more stories about him waking up in the middle of the night and it's thundering and he's like all of a sudden just (laughs) writing great songs again and he can't stop writing them and he's, he's working on these lyrics and such. Um, I also thought this was funny because 
This is like Bob Dylan's life in the 80s. It's like he just woke up on a yacht in 1983, you know, instead of caring about anything. Or, and he just, like, stayed on this yacht until, like, the, the, the beginning of the 90s. He's, like, in his Malibu estate, his compound, his mansion. And for whatever reason, Bono is visiting him. They're just hanging out. Bono, Bono in the, you know, the lead singer of the biggest rock band in the entire world. Yeah, in 1989. In 1989, they were none bigger than them. They were yeah. they were huge. So he can't went to, I don't know to kiss Bob Dylan's ring or whatever. <laughs> and Dylan's like, "Hey, take a look at these." And it's like a bunch of like lyric sheets stuffed in a drawer, and these are all the uh-huh. songs that would become his album in 1989. And Bono's like, "Oh, man, you you maybe might consider recording these." <laughs> I don't know how Bono sounds. That's how he sounds though. <laughs> So Bono had to be like, hey man, you know, these are great, you should do something about these. Dylan meets for the first time your friend and mine, and Dylan's, Daniel Lanois of Time Out of Mind fame. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He had been recording in Louisiana with the Neville Brothers on an album called Yellow Moon, and two of the songs that the Neville Brothers were doing were Bob Dylan songs, obviously from the early 60s, because that's all anybody cared about Dylan in these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bob heard that uh, this Daniel Lanois was a real, you know, a real magician in the studio. And so he kind of <laughs> gave up, he, he wanted to give up uh, some control and go see this guy, because as we discussed in the, in the 1997 episode, Lanois was a bit of a, uh, bit, bit of a hard case. He wasn't, yeah, okay. he, you know, uh, he had the way that he liked to, things that, the way that he liked to do them. And uh, one of those things is he would set up these mobile recording studios wherever an artist that he was working with would like to record. So okay. if, say, Dylan was like, hey, come on out to California, you know, Lanois would like go there and buy a bunch of equipment and find like a spooky house to be in and make the recording studio just for that artist there record the album, record the album, and then, you know, break it down or sell the equipment or do whatever with it afterwards. So this was kind of a thing that he was doing. And um, Dylan had, you know, was like, yeah, sure, whatever, let's do it, because I suck now. Let's do it on my yacht. Let's do it on my yacht, bro. Is that what he said? Uh, I don't think he had a yacht. He was on, <laughs> he was, he was on a metaphorical yacht. <laughs> Actually, I think he was into boating. He was into weird rich guy stuff like that. Um... <laughs> So Dylan takes all of his songs down there to Louisiana. They did it in, in uh, I don't know, I think it was New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, Dylan said he was looking for that, quote, Louisiana swamp sound. And he went down there and he recorded the album that would become Oh Mercy, released September 18th. It went uh, number 30 in the U.S., number 6 in the U.K. It was gold. It spawned. One, no, yeah, one single and one video single. One is called Everything is Broken. Great song. Charted at number eight. And the video was Political World. Uh, directed by John Mellencamp. Oh, yeah. Baby. And you know what? I'll get. I'll give it points later. But uh, can we call him John Cougar Mellencamp? Please? Well, you know what? If you ever call him John Cougar Mellencamp again, you're going to be in trouble. You can't John in 1989. Cougar. No, oh, no, don't do it. <laughs> John Cougar. He dropped the Cougar. That He's sounds not... like a good like uh, fake swear. John Cougar Mellencamp. John Cougar. <laughs> Why are you John Cougar? 
He's not a boy anymore. I used to run my kids. John Cougar Mellon Gatling, baby! Quiet up there! <laughs> that does sound like a good swear. I'm going to start using that. Um, it was warmly received by critics, um, but not like... It was kind of a... Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise, I think, that he was able to make a decent album again. Because he... <laughs> I think, Still had it in him. Yeah, it, it was not the home run that Time Out of Mind became. Um, right. It was definitely his best album. I think people were saying this is this was much like much like Infidels. This is a best album since album. It was a right, it was right, the okay. best album since Desire in 1976. Um, it was, and I like it personally very much. I'll talk a little bit more about it when we do the points. Okay. Um, you know, he kind of he kind of was back, and then of course there was a bootleg slash outtakes controversy because the, there always must be when <laughs> when he leave all the best songs <laughs> off the album. Again he left later. the best ones, some of the best ones, off of there. Um, I was looking at this, and so there's ten songs on there, and I'm thinking that I really like like eight out of ten on them. So that's a pretty good. Hey, whoa, that's right? Solid, pretty solid. Like I I would I would listen to this. I put it on to listen to it. Because I want to, not because okay, not because I'm researching. Doing a podcast about Bob Dylan, <laughs> right? Which we are we doing that? Oh no! Uh, the song in particular, which ended up on his bootleg series, uh, volumes one through three, is called "Series of Dreams," and it is a magnificent song. Um, there's also another one that I discovered later on one of his bootleg series called "Born in Time," and I just wanted to spend a moment talking about how. Um, the the production in the '80s made all the difference for Dylan's music. Like I think the '80s were not kind to Dylan at all. It just wasn't his. It wasn't his decade. You know, like the production yeah. styles didn't suit his songwriting. Like no one cared about anything except for selling records. Like there wasn't. You know, he had to pull one out every year based on a contract that he himself signed. So I'm not let's, let's, let's not cry poor here. I'm sure he was very. For, for a good long time before he signed any contracts. Yeah, so, I'm sure he know. was very well compensated for his terrible trash fire albums from the <laughs> 80s. Uh, but this wasn't one of them, and I think it's all because of Lanois. I think it's because he gave up he gave up a, the control to this guy, and he made a, a, a good album out of it. And the reason that I say that is because two of the outtakes, Born in Time and another song called God Knows, which God knows it's terrible no matter what. It's a bad <laughs> song. Good one. Thanks, man. Uh, they were re-recorded on his next album, Under okay. the Red Sky, the very next year, which is one of his worst albums ever. Can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> so, what a year, 1998. If you compare <laughs> the outtakes, which were recorded by Daniel Lanois, to the ones that Dylan re-recorded just a year later and put, uh-huh. on, and put on this album, it's like no contest. They're almost like different songs. They're so much better. Okay. So I just gotta, you know, I gotta give a shout to Lanois, that prickly son of a gun. He really, he really <laughs> you did. You said it. something similar when we were talking about '83 about Dylan's music and how it was produced yes. awfully. It was and how the songs underneath we you suspected might actually be pretty good. Some of them are. Some of them are going to be terrible no matter what. But that was well, the case sure. in '89 too. Um, and I don't know. You know, apparently this is one of these legendary Dylan things that. Um, doesn't sound true, but maybe it is. Apparently, he went and recorded a whole other version of Oh Mercy with Ron Wood, who was in the Rolling Stones and became a producer. Okay. 
It's like, where's that? You know, I don't know if that's ever been heard or if Wait that exists. Wait for bootleg series number thirty-three. <laughs> that's right. Coming to Coming a store near you, you when you're in your sixties. Oh man, I can't wait for that one. I'm really excited. <laughs> We're still going to be doing this podcast by then. <laughs> oh, Ew. Really okay, a uh, just a touch about his uh, never-ending tour. He was on it. <laughs> he was doing. <laughs> he was never ending. It he did, did not end in 1989. He did a whole. Yeah, just it had just started the year before. Uh, he did just did a monstrous amount of shows. He did a, over a hundred shows. Um, all over the place. He was disinterested, at least half of them. As I said, he, his his uniform, and this is when he started to wear gangster rap hoodies too, which is really I was going to ask, this is where he was getting into Public Enemy? So. Yeah, it was like NWA, I think, was one of his hoodies that he wore. He wore a baseball cap way down over his eyes, and he cinched up the hoodie like a child, like all the way around his face. <laughs> So that you couldn't see him. And he would, like, turn his back to the audience and mumble. And he didn't, obviously, he didn't remember all the words to all of his songs. Like, just I terrible. I want to start a solid conspiracy theory that he was not always, it was not always him on stage. <laughs> That's good, man. I mean, look at these clues here. You can't see him. Back to the audience doesn't know the words to his own songs. I mean, just about anybody can do a bad Bob Dylan singing impression, you know? There was another... Uh, there is. Conspiracy theory was not him on stage for half of the dudes. Uh, well, maybe that's why some of them were good, and some of them were terrible. That's what I'm saying. Um, there's a there's another funny little story. I read a little oral history about the making of O Mercy, and um, Daniel Lanois had his little stable of musicians down there, all of whom were very good. And uh, he invited them to play, you know, with Dylan. Dylan didn't bring his band or anything like that. And one of the guys was like recounting how he was sitting around one day, you know, with his instrument or whatever, and he's like, "This Dylan, who's this guy?" He's never around. Who is this? He's not that great. Who is this guy? And Dylan was sitting right next to him with his with his hoodie all cinched up, and he was, like, writing all these lyrics. He would have been in the room, like, all the time. So weird. Tony, Dylan employed a, you know, he had this, like, hidden family. He was back with the, with the uh, secret family. Yeah, maybe he was, like, actually raising, hired, raising a child. He hired somebody else to, uh, to do the tour for him. That sounds super creepy, that family thing. I don't want to get into that too much. <laughs> We're focused on their creative work. I think, I, think that's, I think that's for the best. Okay, so that's how 89 began. Um, but there is a, or excuse me, ended. Uh, there is a turd in the punch bowl, Chaz. Can, <laughs> oh. you, guess, can you guess what <laughs> Wait, it is? what was that? What, what did you just say? <laughs> There's a turd in the punch bowl. Of, <laughs> uh-huh. of 1989. That's quite the vision, and yeah, okay, don't go, don't go. drink the punch. You think it's good, but there's a turd in there, and it is the release of February sixth, nineteen eighty nine, of Dylan and the Dead, the great live oh, album. Dylan yeah, Dylan and the Dead. Like just drawing me along. I've been waiting for that. One. I have no idea that was nineteen eighty nine. Me neither. Oh man, what a real what a real stinky pooper. This one is. <laughs> Uh, uh, I mean, I've heard you talk about this one as one of the worst. It is. Like, a, I, I think it's you've brought it up as possibly the worst album of any kind he's ever released. Yep, and I, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that now that I actually okay. listened to the whole thing. I it is, listened to it for a while. Yeah, it is one of the worst. Don't get me wrong. Okay, but right. I, in terms of it being the worst, I, I just don't think that's possible. There's, there's definitely worse things. Um, okay, the, right. the critic uh, who. I don't know who this is, but his name is amazing. Stephen Thomas Erdewine said... <laughs> sure, yeah. <that> guy. <laughs> I like his name. Quote, 
quite possibly the worst album by either Bob Dylan or the Grateful Dead. (laughs) 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 And, um, and kind of the, kind of the catchphrase for, for the beginning of 1989 for Dylan was, uh, another critic said it was quote, a sad, disheartening document. (laughs) (laughs) Aww. Sad and disheartening. It's a sad disheartening year. All music.com gives it a solid one out of five stars. It was recorded in 1987 on a tour that he did with the Grateful Dead. Apparently, the tour was pretty successful, um, but the album, produced by Jerry Garcia, lead singer um, right. and mentor of the Grateful Dead, and another guy named John Cutler, it just didn't sound very good. They didn't. They did not translate the the goodwill from the from the tour. And I was listening to it. There's seven songs on it, and they're all pretty long. There's a little bit. Say, how many of them are over ten minutes long, Jake? Uh, I think only a couple. I mean, you got Dylan <laughs> and the Dead. I know. Like, I know. Trust me. Album is actually it's ten crazy. discs. It's it's ten discs. To long. get through all seven. Well, times. wait till the bootleg series comes out about this bad boy. Oh gosh. I can't wait for I can't wait for the critics to bend over backwards trying to say like what a impressive time this was in his career. You know, actually, it's like oh really though. Well, yeah, the tour was well received. Maybe you know, just this one bad document of it. Yeah, that's what they did it with happens, the. Uh, you know? That's what they did with the the Christian trilogy. Apparently, the albums were, were junk, but they went and said the live shows were good. Uh, All right, how much you got here? We we are like well, we're rolling through our time here. Nah, we're good. We're at forty minutes. Uh, okay. Hold on, I'm almost done. Dylan and the Dead yeah. came out on February sixth. It was uh, number thirty seven in the U.S., number thirty eight in the U.K. It went gold. It had a single, which unfortunately I have to give points to, or negative points to, uh, came in at number eight. Um, I just wanted to say that it's a little, there's a, like a neat little novelty in hearing the Grateful Dead play behind Bob Dylan songs. You know, kind of noodle their way through this. I've, I used did they, to, actually, yes. Did they sing, did they do like a mix of Dylan's songs and nope, the Dead songs? Or nope. they all Dylan's? It's all Dylan. It's a Bob Dylan album. Okay. They just happened okay, to okay. have them. Just with them as a backing band. Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, so... You know, there's a little bit of a novelty to that, but um, the song Joey, which I think that we discussed in 1976, the the unfortunate long song about the New Jersey gangster. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's on here. That's number five out of seven on the album. And by about the ninth minute of Joey, it's like, oh, you guys got to stop this. This is terrible. <laughs> Just please stop. And then there's two more really long songs that come after that. Uh, so, you know, I'll give it points later, but... That came out, Chaz. That's 1989. It was a, a year. Well, of, there it is. It was a year of about year. eight lows and two highs, maybe we'll call it. <laughs> Alrighty, let's do some points. Let's do some points. Let's do All it. right, I'm excited. Picking things off with Tim Machine. So I'm talk a little bit more about the Tim Machine album. As I said, it's it's Bowie's easily his uh, his heaviest album he ever recorded, uh, which is not always a bad thing. I think like. It could be better if it had less songs, and I could tell you some of the songs that should be removed. All right, because they're just—I mean, starting with Crack City, which we already mentioned—that <laughs> awful cover of John Lennon's "Working Class Hero," which is heavy. Uh, I don't know. There's a couple others here. This is an interesting album because, as we did, you know, we were doing the research for these years. This is an album that, like, I listened to it. You know, I, had, I was listening to the car for you know, like five or six times in a row, and the first time I listened to it, like. I could swear that I'd not heard half of the tracks from oh, this album yeah. before. Yeah, Because sure. I just never listened to this thing, you know. And I've right. listened to it definitely a few times, but it's, it's been probably a couple of years since I've even taken it off the shelf. It's just not what I, you know, 
so many Bowie albums better than this one. Um, it's it's widely regarded as one of his worst releases. Some okay. people call it his worst ever. I, I think that's a little too strong. He's definitely got some worse stuff than this. <laughs> yeah, sounds familiar. And again, like it, there are some legitimately good songs on this album. Um, at least one of them he covered like himself in 1997. He released a single, I Can't Read It. It's kind of an acoustic-y one, which is pretty good then. Alright. Uh, I don't know, I don't know what to say. It's just, it's so loud and so like, just heavy guitars, you just never really lets up. It's yeah. just kind of relentless, like, it's abrasive. It work. It's abrasive, and it's got bad lyrics on a lot of songs, and I don't know. Anyway, um, I have to also mention the cover of this album. It was released on originally on CD, vinyl, and cassette. <laughs> of course, clearly. And all three of them had different album covers. Oh, but classy. they're kind of the same. So it's all four of these guys <laughs> in like these '80s yuppie suits. Yeah, and they're in the same pose each Yuck time, but they're up. in different positions. Okay. So it's like them, they, I mean, they're in this position, like, you know, one's far back, one's a little closer, one's a little closer, they like, turn different ways and everything. So they did the exact same shot, but with each person in a different place. Yeah. And so the vinyl, the cassette, and the CD all have the same pose, but with different people in each position. Yeah, artsy. There you go. Love the, uh, the vinyl is two songs shorter than oh. the uh, CD and cassette. Unfortunately, they they not they wouldn't have been my choices for songs. Oh, want want. Yeah. So, which he did that a lot. He uh, starting in '87. So his next few albums, he had different like different uh, tracks, like different or different track listings were vinyl versus CD. That's just vinyl losing a couple, so it'll fit in there. Oh, fitting. Yeah. Although '1987 is interesting because seven of the songs are actually edited for the vinyl version. They're actually shorter. So anyway, we all that. Anyway, I am given this thing. I think it's our first. Studio album in the negatives. Yeah. For the show. Wow. I'm giving it a negative 1.5. Woo! Okay. There it is. There it is. Boom. He out. released four singles. <laughs> of course he did. We got, oh yeah. Ugh. We got Heavens in Here, which is a promotional only one. That one's actually an okay song. And especially the, I believe the uh, the single, I couldn't find the single version, but I believe it's an edit. Heavens in Here just goes on too long in the album. Like it's like six minutes long, and, and when it's like three or four, it's a pretty decent song. Okay. I give that a zero. All right. Uh, Under the God is like the heavy-handed way in which he talks about drug dealers in Crack City. He oh. does that again about oh. neo-Nazis in Under the God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, we're just, it's, you know, it's what's really affecting us today. He's running the gamut. Just running the gamut. <laughs> just, you know, it's, it, these are the things, like, we're all, we all can agree that, you know, we don't really, like, need to shed more spotlight on, on how much we don't like drug dealers yeah. and neo-Nazis, right? This is pretty obvious yeah, yeah, targets, yeah. right? That song's not very good, I think, in my opinion. I give it a negative 0.5. Negative 0.5, okay. Next up, we have a double A-side. Oh, double A-side. Um, Tin Machine, the song. Yes. And the live version of Maggie's Farm. <laughs> Excellent! I actually kind of I kind of like Tin Machine, the song. Okay. I kind of don't like the live version of Maggie's Farm. Yeah. The two of them together, since it's a double A-side... Uh, average out to a zero. All right. <laughs> Makes sense. And finally... Oh, boy. Prisoner of Love. Oh. Which, as bad as the title song... I love that sound. I love that sound. It's also the name of a, uh, a best of collection by Yoba Tango, which is, that I'm sure is oh, completely yeah, unrelated, right. 100% unrelated. Anyway, I as bad as that title is, I actually like that song. Okay. I actually think it's one of the good ones. I'm giving it a point five. All right. <laughs> 
Finally, we have a mini tour. It was a. It was only twelve shows. Yeah. Small club tour. Uh, I'm giving it zero points. Which right. kind of yeah, I don't feel like it's enough to do damage really anyway. So we are ending out the year with. Oh, a, a negative, negative year. A negative one point five. Wow, our first negative year, is. I think. Negative year. There it is. Yep. Negative negative one point five. You say. Yeah. Yep. Looks like okay. Wow. Well, congratulations, Bowie, for being our, breaking the seal on those negative years. We're going to have to do it at some point. And I would just like to remind you that this is an improvement. He was on the, this was the upswing right here. He this was, was on his way back upswing. up. Yes, it was. It was the All right. first faltering steps out of the valley that was 1987. How low can you the go? The nadir that was 1987. Oh, that nadir or episode is going to be good. <laughs> he's giving me a... He's giving me something... We're going to be drunk for that episode. Yeah, we're going to have to be, I think. Oh, that's going to be a terrible year. Dylan, no better. No better. All right, go, go. Okay, I'm gone. Um, as I said, Dylan's 89 consists of two albums. One is Old Mercy, which is very, very good. Um, it is a Dylan classic light, L-I-T-E, like almost a classic. <laughs> but um, I'm going to give it a 3.5 because I, oh. I love it a lot. Oh. If, if they had taken out one of the songs called uh-huh. What Good Am I, and they had put in Series of Dreams and Born in Time, uh, two of the outtakes, yeah. magnificent songs, I would give it like a four, for sure. Whoa. 3.5, um, I mean, yeah. we were talking before, I, I didn't think we'd quite get to those heights. That's you don't think impressive. so? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, okay, well, I mean, you, 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 I didn't, you're, I, I, you're, I didn't you're, listen to it. I, I listened to it. I listened to it probably like five or six times in the last couple of weeks, just like in yeah. the car and on my stereo and such. And I just, I love it. It's very good, and I think it's actually good. Um, and I also just want to put in a little word here. There is some, there's still some feeling maybe among critics, or at least there had been in the past, that uh-huh. Old Mercy and Infidels were. We're kind of like vying for Dylan's best album of the '80s. This okay. is this is not a contest. <laughs> this isn't even. There's okay. no there's right. no rational argument to make for Infidels being better than Oh Mercy. Oh Mercy's okay. an actual good album. All right. Speaking of actually good albums, uh, Dylan and the Dead. I I had a very I had is a the great antithesis thereof. <laughs> yes, I had a great moment of clarity um, where I remembered, much to my joy that we weren't rating live albums on the five-point scale and negative five-point five oh, yeah, scale. Because yep. I thought this was going to erase everything good about, you know, Old Mercy. Um, we do that on a three-point and a the, negative three-point right. scale. The people at home, are, we have a weird, complicated system here. Just know that it you get more points or less points for studio albums than live albums, and you can get negative points, which you probably picked up on because I just gave negative points to my album. You sure did. <laughs> All right. All right, so... Dylan and the Dead, lay it on me. Dylan and the Dead, it is... Not his worst live album, nor his worst... Not even his worst live album? I don't think so. There's one called Whoa. Real Live in 84 that's real bad. <laughs> so, but I, I think I'm very much forced to give it a negative 2.5. I mean, we gotta, okay. we gotta get out close of a, out to Out of a that. total possible negative 3. Yeah, so that's bad. That's pretty bad. And its reputation is just... I mean, if we could give more negative points for it... We probably we probably should. I, I listen to it. I don't want to listen to it ever again. Um, I probably won't have to now. Uh, singles. Everything is Broken from Oh Mercy. I give a plus one. Very awesome nice. song. Nice. Uh, he did this kind of like driving song. Uh, driving. That's not blues. 
it was a very a very Lanois kind of a production thing. But again, if he had been doing that with uh, with another producer in the '80s, I think it would have sounded like a terrible a terrible like white blues rock song. But instead, it sounds like a good song. So I'm giving that a plus a good one. White blues rock song. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving that plus one. Um, another good white blues rock song is Political World. This is the video single. Uh, John Mellencamp directing. It's actually a neat video. Like, it starts okay. out... Uh, Political World, you might imagine, is um, kind of a put-down of all that kind of stuff. It's not a heavy-handed put-down, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> Did it get into drug dealers or neo-Nazis? No, it's at def- any point. <laughs> not implicitly. Those sound like missed opportunities. I mean, not explicitly. Maybe implicitly. Did, what, does he have, like, a butthole for a brain, or what? <laughs> he did not say the words butthole for a brain. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm going to try to get it at least one more time before the show's over, just you know. I just can't believe that's on a record. All right, anyway. <laughs> uh, the, the video starts out with a bunch of, like, uh, old, rich, white, you know, people of power uh, mm-hmm. sitting around in, like, a ballroom. And they're sitting at tables, okay. and Bob Dylan and his crack band of political musicians come up and start playing. Um, it's kind of an 80s video where the people are just playing, but the audience is yeah. all these rich-looking people, and by the end of the video, they're all up, like, dancing to the song. It's pretty neat. Uh, yeah. yeah, I liked it. I give it a plus one. Nice. Uh, unfortunately, they released a single from Dylan and the Dead. It's Slow Train. <laughs> it's one of his Christian Trilogy songs. It was not. It was not good on the record, and it's not good as a single. It charted at number eight somehow <laughs> i'm just so mysterious sometimes uh, i give that a big fat negative one <laughs> get out of here get out of here with that slow train uh his tour the second year the never ending tour was hit or miss thereby i give it a zero uh the impersonator was apparently there for half of them or 33 percent of them we're not sure Let's stand. start the conspiracy theory starts bringing uh, everybody I remember... Don't trace it back to me. I remember explicitly being at the Dylan show in 95, my very first concert, and some of the old heads around me being like, oh, this is way better than 89. He didn't. Even, <laughs> he was so drunk, he didn't even know what he was singing. So this is the <laughs> reputation amongst some of the 89. All right. Never nice. ending tour. So that gives me... Uh, okay. Uh, that gives me a solid 2.0. For 1989. 2.0, right. Yeah, not too shabby for too shabby. a year that started out. It's all because of Oh Mercy. The rest was, well, yeah. was garbage. It was it was merciful. <sighs> this is I'll, I'll I'll just leave it I'll just leave it at this. One of the uh, one of the biographers I read said that his 1989 and many of the years surrounding it were filled with constant turmoil, filled with sexual affairs and chronic alcohol abuse. <laughs> oh, Ooh. feeling good. Probably should. It was probably should listen to Crack City and learn a little bit, you know, about about abuse and stuff, drugs. And yeah, stuff. maybe he didn't know. Alcohol is mentioned in there at one point. Is it? Maybe he just wasn't aware about how bad drug dealers are. I think Did that's. You think of that, Jake? I think that's. I think that's hypocritical. <laughs> I think both of our guys were having a tough oh. time, man. Oh yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Uh, we well, got to close the '80s out in some fashion, and we are going to be closing out this podcast. What are we doing next time? Uh, we're bringing things back to a much better year for both of our guys. For sure. Sweet, sweet 1971. Yeah, 1971. It's a good year. It's going to be a good year. Better looking than 89. Looking forward to listening to Hunky Dory for the next two weeks and stuff. Yeah, I might listen yeah, to Hunky Dory. That's, uh... Do it. That... That's the only Bowie album you own, right? The only Bowie album you own? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 
That's a good one. You had a couple best ofs, but yeah. I do have a couple best ofs. Uh, yeah, nice. nice. All right, well, Jake. Sweet. Yep. Well, um, this mm. next, you know, the next half a month here, just don't, don't be a butthole for a brain. Not a butthole for a brain. <laughs> that one didn't work. Sorry, that was that was that was strange. You really, you Sorry, really, I really, I really wanted to get it in there one more time. And I just overplayed my hand and I wrecked it. I give you a negative, I I re- a negative one point zero. I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I regret that this is the way the podcast is ending. Bye. <laughs>